0: we need to train machines up that can help us establish ground truth so that when new information comes available we can measure it up against that and say is this consistent or is this contradictory now just because it's contradictory to ground truth doesn't make it false but it does mean you want to look closer at it and this is kind of I think as we build up defenses for democracy we need You know and i've talked about this a manhattan project to establish ground truth it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of effort but it's very very hard to see a democracy functioning if we can't establish information provenance if we can't establish whether information is likely to be part of a manipulative attack and if we don't have any um, infrastructure to kind of lean back on and say well here's what we do know about the world and here's what we do understand with it and so this is a big problem i think for democracies and we need a way around it. It's an asymmetric fight, but it's one that we have to win. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show where we learn
1: about making machine learning models work in the real world. I'm your host, Lucas Biwal. Sean Gurley is the founder and CEO of Primer, a natural language processing startup in San Francisco. Previously, he was CTO of Quid, an augmented intelligence company that he co founded back in 2009. And prior to that, he worked on self repairing nanocircuits at NASA Ames. Sean also has a PhD in physics from Oxford, where his research is a Rhodes Scholar focused on graph theory, complex systems, and the mathematical patterns underlying modern war. I'm super excited to talk to him today. So Sean, it's great to talk to you. I mean, I really appreciate you taking the time. The first thing I want to ask you, since you're an entrepreneur and and so am I, is tell me about your company Primer. I'm sure you want to talk about it.
0: We're uh, a company that specializes in training machine learning models to understand language, to replicate different kinds of human tasks that run on top of language. Everything from uh, identifying key bits of information to summarizing documents to uh, extracting relationships uh, between entities for a knowledge graph. Uh, We also do a lot of work on language generation as well and particularly uh, fact-aware language generation. So we we spend a lot of time trying to teach our machines not to hallucinate, which tends to be uh, sort of uh, one of the the issues of these transformer-based models. And so it's it's really interesting when you're in this kind of world uh, of machines that dream and and trying to teach them not to. But the goal for us is to take uh, human actions on top of uh, text and um, automate them at scale so that you can kind of find insights that no individual human would be able to see by themselves. And we've had a lot of success in doing that over the last few years.
1: And is your goal to kind of make these like individual tasks available to someone who wanted to use them, or is it to deliver these insights to a customer?
0: I think the goal for us is is ultimately to let these tools to the customer so that they can take um, actions that were done by humans and ultimately automate them. Now you get the automation, but if you do it at scale, then all of a sudden you do get these insights that no individual human would have found. What we've found though, as we've gone through that is that the internal kind of data science teams, within these organizations have said, look, you know, we'd love to kind of have these different components that you've built. And so we've also been able to sell the different API components to users as well. But look, the end goal for us is to make this available for users, with no technical knowledge, and that's where we're focusing.
1: And do you have a particular end user or domain that you care about? Or is this like a broad based platform for insights?
0: Yeah, look, so we've been focused on defense from day one. And my background, my PhD work was in uh, the mathematical dynamics of insurgency. And so I spent a lot of time in in the world of intelligence and uh, defense. I think they have a really particularly useful use case. Uh, They spend a lot of time dealing with text-based information, perhaps more than anyone else in the world. So if you're an analyst uh, sitting there inside of uh, um, a three-letter agency, you're going to be dealing with hundreds of thousands of text-based documents coming across uh, your feed every day. And I think there's no surprise to anyone in, in the industry that that's just not a scalable human task. So we were able to go into that. I think there's three things that make that really attractive for us. One is the volume of text. I think the second is that any edge uh, that you can get as, as an intelligence or defense operator um, or analyst, you're going to want to take that. And then the third thing is, you know, we've seen a really, really good defensibility. Once you're in and deployed in these organizations, there's a two-year process to get in there. And so it's a good market to to kind of land in once you've deployed your technology and got it working.
1: Has the the state-of-the-art in natural language processing changed to enable a company like this? Or is there some like specific insight that you felt you had? Or how how do you think about that, like this moment for your company?
0: Yeah, look, so when I started this, it was sort of 2015. I was watching, as you probably were, a lot of my my friends and a lot of our friends would have been playing with um, neural nets and uh, doing image processing. And I remember Jeremy Howard was showing me some of the stuff he was doing with caption generation on top of uh, images. And I remember watching that and seeing the caption generation piece. And I was like, this is going to come to language, right? These technologies is going to come to language. And so that was sort of end of 2014, start of 15, watching, watching friends do that. And, you know, for me, I made a bet and said, look, we've seen computer vision go from 30% error rates to 5% error rates with these new you know, neural approaches. And language felt like the next logical place that that had happened. I think if I'm honest, like the first two to three years of the company, we, we, we the technology hadn't caught up to the vision. But then you know, we saw transformer-based models emerge, and that's just been a game changer. Um, and what that's meant for customers is it's meant that uh, these are actually you know trainable, um, which means they can be customizable, which means that you can actually start to uh, deploy them to a pretty diverse set of use cases.
1: So you mean like fine-tuned or something on their own data sets? Yeah, so instead of having
0: to kind of train with hundreds of thousands of documents and data points and training examples, you know, you can start with a model that's got a pretty good embedding structure from reading kind of general um, information. And then you can retrain that, obviously, on a fraction of the information that would otherwise have been required. So I think that's probably the single biggest thing. And that allows users to engage with this technology. I think with the, we talk about, you know, what's your return on investment for the time you want to take to train this in order to get a payoff? and that's come down you know significantly with these models
1: you do a wide range of kind of traditional nlp use cases which ones have you seen the, the biggest change and maybe which ones have you still kind of not seen the improvement from this new technology
0: yeah it's a good question and we started language generation it was sort of you know recursive neural nets and lstms and you couldn't really generate a sentence with any kind of credible output, right? So like the idea of even kind of like doing a multi-paragraph summary of a document was just, you know, science fiction. So the stuff that this technology has enabled that you just couldn't have done. I think the second bit here is the idea of training a model with a few dozen examples to pick up a relationship extraction between two entities. Again, that was that was a scientific paper that you had to write. So like there's stuff that's, this that this is enabled that just wasn't even within the realm. I think, you know, where, where this has come, where it hasn't had as big an impact, I, I think it's really only limited by the training data that you're, you're so sort of willing to throw at it. And, you know, perhaps there are tasks in NLP that this wouldn't be appropriate for, but we, we honestly haven't seen it. Everything that we've given the training data for these models, they've performed in a good way. I think they make errors that the older... NLP models don't make, but they make less errors. So you're going to take that every time.
1: Mm.
0: And, you know, your
1: name Primer is evocative, at least to me, of kind of summarization. Is that, am I correct in, in making that connection?
0: It's actually, it, it comes from inspiration of in Neil Stevenson's book, The Diamond Age, if you're a science fiction fan, the, the subtitle of that is The Young ladies Illustrated Primer. And in that book, the protagonist has a a, a nanotechnology, which creates a nanotechnological book that is designed to educate the world. And of course, uh, without spoiling the book, it it kind of falls into the hands of manipulation versus education, which I think is is, is a wonderful kind of theme. And so, you know, obviously underneath that is this idea that if you could have a self-writing book that could educate us about the world, you know, we'd be in a science fiction world and we'd be able to kind of do fascinating things with that. And so for us as a guiding principle is how do we how do we train machines to observe the world and teach us about what they're seeing so that we can be smarter about the world that we're living in. Mm.
1: So I guess there's some connection, maybe not directly. I guess I was I was feeling impressed that, you know, I feel like summarization or, or text generation, like you said, has been kind of the most interesting, maybe most impressive use of these, you know, the new kind of transformer technology. And I was wondering if you sort of Felt that that was coming, or you know,
0: if you were surprised by it. Well, we so my, my my thing always at the start was you know we wanted to build a, a self writing Wikipedia, and that was going to ultimately be something that that this was going to enable. I, we we were a long way away in twenty fifteen from that technology even kind of existing, and so you know it was a bet on this on this becoming available, and it turns out it's been a good bet. So I'll take the win on being on being right, <laughs> but I I don't know if I had the uh, the right you know information, so maybe I'm just lucky, but we'll we'll take it. <laughs> And I was kind of curious.
1: You're one of the few people like me, kind of like a second-time founder, um, doing something in, in sort of a similar space as your first company, like I am too. I'm curious if if that kind of shaped your views of your new company, like kind of what you were sort of thinking of, you know, maybe doing differently, and what like you wanted to keep from from your last company.
0: Yeah, look, I I, I, th- I think it's it's kind of like I always sort of joke like you know, when you're a writer, your first novel is sort of the easiest because it's, it's a sort of a collection of it, all your experiences up to that point. Your second novel is, it has to be something new to kind of carry that analogy on your first novel's kind of biography. So it's, it's, I think in your first company, you know, for me anyway, it was that, that, that idea you'd always had the back of your head that you wanted to make real. I think in your second company, and, and, and it's been true for me, I've become more grounded in the, uh, commercial realities of of like what's actually going to sell, what's going to scale, how big the opportunity is, what are the kind of the mega trends that are unfolding? And we've been, you know, very conscious of wanting to catch those waves and, and having a kind of a large commercial market to go after having defensibility in the space that you're in becomes really important. But I think overall, the biggest thing is just operationally. I think when you're creating your first company, you don't really know what it's like to scale an organization and, and, and I think until anyone's been through that, you don't really have that idea. I think once you've done it the second time, you know, there's a lot of familiar signposts along the way where you're like, oh, this is what happens at this time. And that's fine. And this is what happens at that time. And that's fine. Whereas I think the first time you see it, you, you sort of like, oh my God, is this, is this the end? Right. Or is this like, is this danger? Or is this like, is this what winning looks like? And the second time you do it, you're, you're like, no, I've got a few more data points. And um, just having seen something once before is, is night and day versus seeing it the first time.
1: Yeah, I guess I, I can I can relate to that. <laughs> I'm curious too, I don't know if you think of yourself this way, but like, you know, when you look at your background, it sort of feels like a data scientist, right? Like you have a, a PhD in physics, I think, right? And then yeah, um, sure. did some yeah. really, you know, some really interesting kind of data stuff we could talk about on, on uh, mathematics and war, I think. Yeah. But do you think, I don't meet a lot of other data scientists that run companies do you think that that bent like informs your leadership style
0: it's funny I, I probably only hang out with other data scientists that run companies to my <laughs> I think me me, and Mike Driscoll, um, we, we we tend to, and Pete Skalmarach, and we tend to kind of console ourselves with the data scientists found the therapy sessions. So and you're probably right, though, and, and, and balance is probably not a lot of us. I think there's a few things that come, come through as a data scientist. You know, one is I think you, you have an appreciation of the algorithms. And I think the single biggest thing that I've seen is when it comes to kind of product design, you're designing products that have algorithms at their heart. It's not algorithms to optimize the product experience. The, the product is the algorithm. The algorithm is the product. And I think that appreciation is really, really important when it comes to kind of this idea of building a product and what a product market fit means and all of that. And it's not a direct translation from sort of the old world where you're designing products that don't have algorithms at their heart. So I think, I think that's one piece of it. I think a second bit is that you know the reality is, as you're growing this, these organizations, you're never going to have all the data you need at the start. And so, like, if you're in a big organization, I chat with a lot of, you know, friends that have come from LinkedIn and so on, you've got data that you can optimize, you can run A-B tests on, you can do all of that. You know, when, when no one's using your product because you're trying to get the algorithms to work, you, you don't have the traditional kind of data science methodology. It's not that useful for you. So that, that's definitely a frustrating piece. You know, you, you, you can't lean on that. So I think on the upside, you, you, you understand the algorithms, but on the downside, you don't really have data to make decisions on. It's probably a bit of both worlds. But I got to say, it would be tough to be CEO and founder of a company if you didn't have a good grasp of these kinds of technologies. So it's a pretty steep learning curve. So I, I definitely wouldn't trade the background by any means.
1: It's funny. I, I think myself, I wonder if I am maybe less data-driven in some ways than other CEOs that don't come from a data background because it's, I feel like sometimes people use data as almost like a wedge to reinforce their confirmation bias. And I, I think as a data scientist, or at least for me, I feel like I am maybe a little more skeptical um, of the data because <laughs> I, you know, I, I work with it so much, which I think sometimes makes me maybe in some realms less data-driven. I wonder if you identify that with that at all. Yeah, there's
0: always skepticism of the question. It's always where do you get this data from? And, and then my mind immediately goes to kind of what's wrong with the data. And that side of it I think is right. I think in this, there's a lot more gut instinct then I think anyone kind of appreciates. I I don't think you can run, you know, a deep tech emerging company from data. It it just, your your data oriented decision framework is probably not right. I think where I spend a lot of time is in this kind of like space between the scientific publishing and commercialization. I think perhaps more than anything, having a PhD and being familiar with how science evolves allows you to sort of make these bets on scientific breakthroughs that maybe seem risky to the outsider, but when you're following it and you know what the trajectory of a kind of an emerging scientific breakthrough feels like, you can kind of put your chips behind that, place a bet on it, and you know, in 12 months, 18 months, you can cash in on that. And I think perhaps more than anything that the benefit of a PhD in something like physics is a familiarity with science and a familiarity with the scientific process and translating that into a set of strategic bets that you can make as a CEO. To position your company to best have upside with, with what's going to unfold. And I went back, as you're saying here, you know, maybe I'm lucky. Um, the other way to look at it, perhaps more generously, is, is I just had a really good grasp of where the field was going, and maybe I can claim some success on that. But but that's the bit here, is familiarity with science. And I think, as we've seen here, you've got one hand on archive and one hand on your, uh, your email. And between the two of those, you're probably uh, steering the company. Interesting. So where do you try to put your algorithms? Like, Are you
1: trying to push the very state of the art in terms of things like architecture or are you sort of like intentionally like drawing from research and and mostly using results that you find?
0: Well, so it's interesting. There's, there's two things. So, so one is research for sure, right? Like if, if you've got breakthroughs and these aren't always the obvious ones, but absolutely right. Like science unfolds, you want to take that learning and, and commercialize it. Now the commercializing of science can, can everything from making it cost efficient to run through to kind of training it on the right data through to kind of understanding, you know, how to kind of correct for the 15%, you know, false positives that pop up, which you can't do in a kind of a a mathematically elegant way. And it becomes a set of kind of rule-based kind of corrections at the edge. So that all of that kind of is, is part of commercialization. But the other side of it is there's a whole bunch of stuff that just doesn't fit the scientific publishing paradigm. And a lot of language generation doesn't fit the scientific publishing paradigm. Because all they've got, are they've got blue and rouge and these are useless with regards to kind of any customer experience of language generation. So, you know, in order to evaluate the quality of your language output, you've literally got to put humans on top of this and kind of have them evaluate everything that you're doing, which is incredibly expensive and it sort of hasn't been part of the scientific paradigm. So there's there's very little kind of publishing on language generation, I think largely because the ability to kind of like get a decent F-score is really, really hard. And you can probably go through a whole bunch of language processing tasks that just don't have a decent F-score measure or have a difficult F-score measure and such, and as such, don't have a, a really an active scientific space. So it's been interesting kind of tracking that through. And I think the other bit here is science is still some of the best inspiration, right? And in terms of like, it can just just sort of spark an idea and you're like wow that that's a super cool attempt and that side of science is pretty valuable too
1: mm.
0: well you know we're sitting
1: here in, in august 2020 talking about uh, you know text generation so I, I have to ask you what you make of gpt3 right that recently came out and and people seemed very impressed how impressed surprised were you by by its performance
0: well I, I think the gpt2 was the bigger jump right i i think where gpt2 came along it was like, wow, these transformers scale and they scale really well. Right. You know, it's funny. That was
1: exactly my reaction. (laughs) I didn't want to bias the question, but I totally, totally agree.
0: Because prior to that language generation, you know, via LSTM And and that was, was pretty, was pretty bad. Like you couldn't, you could make a sentence, but you couldn't string two sentences together. And so, so that was the first thing was GPT-2. I was like, wow, now where GPT-3 came and I think it's useful, you know, was I was like, Oh, it keeps scaling, right? Like it, it doesn't seem to like have a finite kind of like scaling effect at this sort of level of parameter space. So that's useful. Right. But for me, the big jump was GPT-2. Now what we found on that, and, and you can take a different set of transformers, you can take XLNet or, or BART or BERT or, you know, whatever you want. But what you found is, is, is the, although the party trick is language generation, I think the true value of that is the trainability of these models is that you can train them to do tasks that are sort of the traditional NLP tasks but you can train them with a lot less data. And it's super impressive to kind of see language generation but in terms of the value for our customers it's basically saying oh with 20 training examples you can build this thing that with 90 you know 5 plus you know precision and 90 plus percent recall will automate your human task every time. So I think that the true commercial value of this is, is the retrainability. The party trick is the language generation. Although if you put on your hat, of, and maybe we'll get to that later, of disinformation and, and, and manipulation, then there's definitely a whole uh, industry that's going to spawn up around uh, language generation. But we'll, we'll get to that later maybe.
1: <laughs> well, maybe we should move in that direction. But I'm kind of curious how you – do you have a thought on why GPT-3 like captured people's imagination so thoroughly?
0: It's funny, it was one of those ones, I, I, I sort of, woke, so we saw the paper get published, we went through it, and, and the thing that captured me was, was the few-shot learning, right, which was super interesting. And I think it got underplayed in the paper, right? The few-shot learnings was probably the most, I think, impressive piece of that work. And then I woke up like a month after the paper was published, and then all of a sudden, entire like VC Twitter was like going like bananas for GPT-3, and I sort of had that moment, I was like, what's going on here? And I, I just sort of scratched, scratched my head. I, I think. OpenAI has, you know, done one thing incredibly well, we don't probably appreciate that the marketing that they do is par excellence for, you know, the world of AI, right? It it really is impressive. And how they rolled out that release, I think of GPT-3 versus kind of the GPT-2 kind of it's too dangerous, don't touch it. GPT-3 was like, come and play with it if you're special. And it was a perfect influencer campaign that was run beautifully, you know, and it's up there with the influencer campaigns of Fire Festival and uh and uh <laughs> but well, I like, you're like, being nice, but
1: now I feel like maybe you're not, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I can't I know tell if you
1: admire it well, or that, if you're <laughs> Yeah,
0: yeah. But that was a wonderful influencer campaign. They sent everything to back it up with. I actually think there's there's a lot more there. But in terms of the campaign that they did it was was wonderful and I think that, that captured sort of the, the minds of, of, of VC Twitter. I think the bit that people miss on this is it matters what training data you've given to these machines, and it matters a lot more than you think. Right. And that's the bit that everyone sort of missed. It's like, out of the box, we can use this with a few examples that it learns. People talk about steerability or they talk about priming the, 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 the system. What you're trying to do is correct for the sort of the, the somewhat random nature of the training data. And it's a really bad way to steer a model where you don't know what it's been trained on. And you're trying to give it kind of hints in order to keep it away from being racist. And, you know, you don't know what it's read. It kind of feels like just the blind kind of like, you know, exploration. So I I think the learning out of all this is is training data matters. And the other bit I think here is that Twitter is a wonderful medium for displaying outputs of models that have 30% precision because you don't see the other 70% where it missed. And I think that's the other piece here is that You know, if you look at 10 cherry picked examples of these outputs, you know, you're going to see some great results. But as we know, in the commercial world, for most applications, you know, human kind of precision is is plus 90%. And if you don't hit plus 90% on your task, it's very, very difficult to commercialize it. And so I think that the the race as we look at NLP tasks is always, you know, the race to a a 95% precision and that, that kind of is human comparable.
1: Well, so you've, you've touched on kind of AI and and safety a couple of times in the last few minutes and you, you also kind of operate in a world that I think is considered a gray area to a lot of AI researchers right to you know defense or military applications. I'm curious what, what you think about generally about especially natural language models and and safety and you know what should be done, how, how worried you think people should be about misuse of these models and and like what role you, you think you should play as sort of like a leading company in the space?
0: Well, I think first and foremost, if we want to be a global superpower, as America, you have to have defense, you have to have intelligence, you may not want to have them, but then you don't get to be the global superpower. So that's the first thing to kind of just accept is that defense and intelligence are part and parcel of being a global superpower. It's also part and parcel of defending liberal Western democracy. And there are plenty of other organizations and governments in the world that don't want that to exist. So we need we need that. As you come back from that, the second thing you say, well, we want it, but we want it to be good, right? And so you say, well, if I want it to be good, well, we we need to bring artificial intelligence and the latest technologies that we're developing to bear on that problem space. It's sort of a strange philosophical ground to say, well, we need to have defense, but it shouldn't be good, right? It's just a strange position. Now, as you go through that, you say, well, yeah, there are also ethical concerns and moral concerns, there are very, very few organizations in the world that think more deeply about the ethical and moral implications of war than defense and intelligence. They 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 live and breathe this stuff. And we can kind of sit here and arm back quarterback from from the valley. But the reality is, is this is something that has been thought very, very deeply about and has a lot of care and the kind of rules of engagement are very, very well defined and very, very well. Uh, thought through and and have been shaped and kind of constructed over many, many years. Now, a lot of them haven't imagined what AI does in that, but there's also been a huge amount of work, you know, going back to me over the last decade with, with defense, with intelligence, talking about these exact scenarios of what it means to have artificial intelligence engaging in this kind of process. So, for, for me here, you know, bringing this technology to bear in defense and intelligence is something that um, I think is the right thing to do. And it's a very, very important mission for myself and for our company. As we do that, we also realize we've got a responsibility that it matters if we're generating models that are classifying things that are unfolding in the world and saying, look, we, we identified in an event. And if you misclassify that, that intelligence is now percolating up a chain, which is going to have consequences. Right? So there are very real consequences when you talk about the precision of the models that you're working with. There are very real consequences when you talk about what the data is being trained on, what the susceptibility of the models that you've got are to outside um, adversarial attacks. So all of this becomes something that you need to kind of work with and deal with. I think the sort of the ethical, you know, c- components of this woven into the decisions that we make. And, uh, you know, it, it's something that's also moving, I think, pretty quickly. And, there's one thing you learn in in science and technology is that science and technology moves a whole lot faster than the philosophical and ideological kind of foundations on which you can kind of make decisions on top of. And so you are by nature going to be in gray zones. And, you know, this is, this is something you've got to be kind of open to and say, look, we're going to navigate where perhaps no one's ever thought about this before. And there isn't kind of a, a, a strong kind of rule that you can fall back to and say, hey, this is the answer this is what you're supposed to do in the situation because the situation's never existed before. So, you know, it's it's something that we spend a lot of time and with both ourselves and also our advisors, spending time each and every week going through this stuff, making decisions and trying to kind of navigate the best path that we can through this. But I think it would be a lie to say that this is really easy and there's this clear black and white kind of distinctions because we're dealing with stuff that simply didn't exist in the world before but we're also dealing on the geopolitical scale with stuff that simply didn't exist in the world before. And do you think like at this moment
1: in time, August, 2020, do you think that the, that for governments, natural language processing, like machine learning is, is an important part of their defense capability?
0: Yeah, I think there's three places where it comes through. You know, the first is on the intelligence side. There's there's too much information coming in. And simply put, if you don't have machines playing some role in helping you navigate that information, you're going to have information that no one ever sees. And if you don't see information, you can't bring it to bear on decisions that you're making. So step one, the volume of information requires a natural language a toolkit to actually help navigate. The second thing here is, is that the complexity of the world that we're in means that, you know, drawing inferences between something that's happening in Russia and something that's happening in you know East Africa is very very difficult for an individual that has to specialize in I'm an East African specialist or I'm a Russian specialist machines don't have that limitation right they can look further they can look wider they can draw inference across larger set of data points because they're not fundamentally constrained by the bandwidth of information they can consume so I think as we move to a more complex world it's essential to have machines that can make connections across domains that humans aren't necessarily looking at. The third thing is, and this is sort of, I think become increasingly important, is that more and more information is being generated by machines and that's being used to manipulate. And if you've got humans that are trying to filter through the output of, of propaganda from China that's being machine generated, you've brought a knife to a gunfight. You're gonna lose that. And so as we look at things like, you know, the, the operations out of Pacific Command, you know, there's, there's a, a huge volume of information now that China's got its head around disinformation and manipulation. You you can't navigate this as a set of humans. It's just not possible. And if you try and do that, you're gonna lose. So I think the disinformation landscape has necessitated a set of machines that need to come into this. So could I think you be, out of all, sorry, yeah.
1: could you be more concrete about the disinformation? Like should I be imagining sort of like, you know, Facebook bots or what what's it's actually so it's actually
0: evolved a lot. Like so our, our standard kind of thing was was Facebook bots, you know, back in twenty sixteen. What you've got now is a manipulation ecosystem. So it's everything from state broadcasting. So if you're in the the sort of the Russian example, you've got Russia Today and, you know, that sort of state broadcasting. You've got state-supported broadcasters. So things like Sputnik in Russia. Then you've got kind of fringe publications, which are supported. These can be kind of fringe versions of, you know, Huffington Post, but it would be a fringe version of that where anyone can kind of submit. Then you've got social media. And then you've got sort of cyber-enabled hacking, right, where you may um, falsely release a set of emails that have been doctored. So all of these components make up the sort of the ecosystem of information manipulation, and they actually layer together. So you can hack a set of emails, falsify emails, spread them out, have them found on social media, have it, you know, um, amplified by a a third-party fringe voice on a a user-submitted site like Huffington Post, but not Huffington Post, probably. You can have it kind of rebroadcast through Sputnik and then end up on RT and then be connected back into Fox News, right? So that cycle allows layering of information to come where you don't know the original source of it. You you may not be aware of how it came to be, and you may be hit with the information from three different angles that makes it feel like it's a lot more kind of authentic. And you know, you can do this with fake information. You can also do it with information that's actually real, but perhaps isn't as important as it should be. So maybe there's a shooting that happens, you know, which becomes front and center news when a reality is it was just a local shooting. And if it hadn't been amplified, it never would have been on the radar. So you're not just in this world of is this real or is it fake? It's it's actually whose agenda is being pushed and what organism is actually pushing this agenda. and this is kind of where I think we're sitting now is actually a very, very complex disinformation ecosystem designed to manipulate.
1: How does machine learning enable that though? Because all those examples you said, I I could picture that being done with just human beings, you know, motivated human beings doing a lot of uh, typing, I guess, is is ML really changed this? Yeah. So I,
0: I think, I think state of the art at the moment is, is humans at the internet research agency sitting down and, you know, from what we know, they have a set of objectives they have to hit. They have a, a, a sort of a, a scoreboard of topics they need to cover every day, and then they get rewarded based on the performance. It's all very manual. I think what we're looking at is it generally takes on order of 18 months, 24 months for a sort of an emerging technology to become sort of weaponized, right? So we're not seeing yet the weaponization of language generation. We have just started to see the weaponization of image generation for fake images and fake profiles. We haven't seen the weaponization of yet really, although we should expect it soon, of of, um, of video generation. So language language generation is a lot newer. I I think we're probably two years away from seeing that, but there's obviously a very, very clear path that if you can generate all sorts of anti-vaccination articles, that target to different demographics, and you can do that by the scale of millions, you're going to get some really, really persuasive arguments that are able to be captured and propagated. So whilst it hasn't unfolded yet, because the technology is new, it, it <laughs> I, I, I think it's very, very clear that this is a weapon, that if you were going to take this on, that is absolutely something you'd want to kind of have in your disposal. And So I think that's one piece of it. I think the second bit, it gets back to more of the traditional data science, which is, you know, A-B testing on the scale of millions. And, you know, whilst you can't really do that when humans are typing this stuff out, once machines are producing it, you absolutely can. So I I think that gets you into kind of, gets you into a world where this is going to be a lot more coherent. The other bit that I'd flag going back to science is one of the most fascinating kind of areas of scientific research at the moment has been, for me anyway, has been opinion formation and crowd dynamics, right? So it's got roots in kind of a little bit in epidemiology. It's got roots in a little bit in stock market trading. It's got roots, obviously, in in the world of, of idea formation and diffusion of ideas. But this is an area where we're actually seeing that crowds can actually be very manipulable. That research is happening. It's going on. Once you couple these other technologies into that, I think we're going to start to see that you can move and manipulate large groups of people. Through the information they are exposed to and at that point you've got a fundamental issue with democracy right and this is why it's such a big issue right we are based as a society on the free and open debate and sharing of ideas to come to consensus um, in a democratic process to elect governance for us once we lose faith in that democracy dies and there's a very very clear vector of attack with manipulation of information by machines and so we need defenses against that and it's, it's coming and you know, the defense and intelligence sector has realized this and uh, we're working very closely with them to help with that defense.
1: Could you sketch out what a defense to that might look like? Because it, it doesn't seem obvious there's a way to kind of prevent people from you know, creating very persuasive content. In fact, you might argue that's, that's happening right now.
0: Yeah. So, so I, I, I think that's right. Look, so one of the things to recognize is it's an asymmetry, right? So with any asymmetrical conflict you know, one side has the advantage over the other. And, you know, I sort of draw the example with, you know, image generation. If you generate a a face of of a person, you've got two options, right? If you want to know if that's real, you can go and check every single person in the world and see if it's there. And if you get through everyone, you don't find them, then it's fake. So obviously, it's easier to generate an image than it is to determine if if it's fake or not. Now, of course, as you go through that, there are signs and telltale signs, right? They're a little too blurry. The ears are asymmetrical. The teeth don't quite line up. Right. And so then people kind of figure that out and then they generate a new uh, image and then the old techniques for identifying it aren't work anymore. And now you're in a cycle of, of effectively what we've seen in cybersecurity, which is things like zero day attacks, right, where you get a new model that hasn't been shown before. And the statistical signatures of that model aren't known to the defense systems. So it's a game of detection and deception. Right. Can, can I deceive the algorithms that are designed to detect whether this is real or not? Or can I actually detect it and kind of like stop it? So that's one side of it. Now that's in images, but if you go into language, you know, obviously there are signals in here. And and one of the ones that we, we spot and look at is the zip distribution. So if you look at language, there's a zip distribution, which is, you know, a relative frequency of words that we use. And each author has a kind of a statistical signature of language and machines have a statistical signature of language. And so you can spot them. But if you generate a new model, then the old methods of detecting it aren't necessarily there. So you've got the whole kind of like detection of deception. Is this this being generated by a machine or not? But on the other side of it, you've also got, you know, things like claims that are being made. So if a claim is being made that 5G causes coronavirus, well, you can actually train that, you know, trace that claim backwards. Where did it first originate? How did it propagate? And so it's not so much as the language real or fake, but has it been propagated by grassroots or has it been propagated through the network via actors that are intentional about that? Now, to do that, you've got to classify a relationship between 5G and coronavirus. And as you look at that, there's all sorts of ways to say that it's you know it's caused by, it's a result of. And so you're now into a kind of a relationship classifier. And so you can do that. We deploy that technology looking at relationships for claim extraction, you know, propagating that backwards. But we also look for things that counter that claim, right? So you know, 5G is not caused by, also coronavirus is not caused by 5G. Or, Coronavirus, you know, was likely, you know, um, caused by an infection of a bat into a wet market, right? So these would be claims are at odds with each other. So but ultimately the dynamic is how do you get a ground truth? Right. How do you get a ground truth? And I think if we're looking at kind of a long-term kind of game on this, is we need to train machines up that can help us establish ground truth so that when new information comes available, we can measure it up against that and say, is this consistent or is this contradictory? Now, just because it's contradictory to ground truth doesn't make it false, but it does mean you want to look closer at it. And this is kind of, I think, as we build up defenses for democracy, we need, you know, and I've talked about this, a Manhattan Project to establish ground truth. It's going to take a lot of work and a lot of effort, but it's very, very hard to see a democracy functioning if we can't establish information provenance, if we can't establish whether information is likely to be part of a manipulative attack. And if we don't have any um, infrastructure to kind of lean back on and say, well, here's what we do know about the world and here's what we do understand with it. And so this is a big problem, I think, for democracies and we need a way around it. And so this is this is going to come down to, you know, it's an asymmetric fight, but it's one that we have to win.
1: Do you think that it would be wise to use the same kind of manipulation techniques to spread true information?
0: Yeah, this this is interesting, right? So on the one side, you've got detection, I think the other side you've got, well, what's your reaction, right? What's the action that you take on top of this? I think at this point here, um, and you can go into just kind of the health crisis kind of dynamic of COVID, and that, that sort of maybe makes it a little more real. And so if you've got stuff here, you know, around the diffusion of, you know, HCQ being a, an effective treatment or, you know, masks don't work, this is really dangerous, right? This is incredibly dangerous. The propagation, and, you know, we've seen bot activity around masks don't work there does seem to be coordinated attacks around pushing device and this masks. masks.
1: Um, well, sorry, why would that be true? Like who, who would stand to gain from pushing the idea that, bo- that masks don't work?
0: Well, so if you want to create political division, which is, has been a stated goal of the IRA, the Internet Research Agency, you find any hot button issue that will divide a country, push it. It puts it into tribalism. You have an us and a them and you lose the cohesivity. Why do you want to do that? Well, if you don't have a unified set of political um, consensus on anything. It's very, very hard to go to war. It's very, very hard to rally the US to say, don't invade Crimea if you can't even agree on masks, right? So like one one way to kind of neutralize the strongest military in the world is to ensure that the political actions will never come to agreement about how it will be used. And Russia has been incredibly smart on that. And so one of their kind of goals as they look through is to divide the nation so that you can't agree on anything. And so, one of the things has been masks. Now, the, the added kind of benefit of the masks is that it kind of ruins, you know, the health of, of society by having division on that, and it also ruins trust in the political system, which is again to Russia's advantage. So, this has absolutely been something that, that if, if you're sitting there, this is this has been one of the things that have pop up on your uh, your daily kind of topic board of things you have to act on, and we can see that kind of manifest from the way in which information is propagating and the way in which bot type activity is engaging. And so if you look at that and you say, well, right, there's nothing we can do about that. Well, that's that's the, wrong, that's the wrong thing to do because not only are you creating a political device in this, lives are being lost, right? So it's a hard position to hold that we shouldn't do something. I think the, the question then comes is like you do want to propagate information out that is, that is true and that does kind of you know, conform to the scientific you know, consensus. But the interesting thing on that is masks were not a scientific consensus, right? And if you went early on, it was against WHO regulation. And so if you posted, and I had conversations with Jeremy Howard about this, he posted on Reddit, and they said, you can't put that here, you can't post that masks are an effective solution. And the reason you can't post it is because this is pseudoscience, because science hadn't come to a conclusion. So it's really, really tough, right, as you go through this is to say, well, what is ground truth, particularly if science hasn't figured it out? And then how do we police you know, content that may or may not conform to this. And so immediately as you go through this, you start to realise that it's a very, very difficult problem. However, it's also one that you feel like you've got to act on. So I, I think we're going to have to be in a place where we do use this technology to inoculate ourselves against kind of disinformation. And one of the things here is, is kind of, you know, to take the virus in analogy, if you haven't been exposed to a, a political stance on, on masks, You'll probably um, take whatever you're first exposed to, and if if you're exposed, the first information is that masks don't work. It's a conspiracy. If that becomes your first exposure, it's much much harder to change your opinion than if your first exposure were masks are a good idea. If you help me, um, I help you. It's a good idea. So one of the things you look about is identify the manipulation campaigns early and inoculate susceptible populations to the messages by exposing them to good, well-grounded, ground truth. With those similar techniques? Similar techniques, I I think you're going to have to use similar techniques, right? And this is kind of, to go back to the, the book from Stevenson, you know, the line between education and manipulation is a very, very fine and often blurry line. And it's that dynamic, right? It's like, well, if I'm educating, I am manipulating, but the difference is I'm doing it for the benefit of you, I'm doing it for the benefit of the society. Um, not I'm doing it for my own benefit. And I think, I think that's kind of the dynamic here is undoubtedly we're training machines to understand the world in ways that we can't, to do things that we can't. What we teach them, how we teach them is really important because they're going to then be um, tools that, that you know, either benefit us or, or work to our detriment. But that kind of dynamic is it's, they're undoubtedly going to see things that we can't see and they're going to understand things that we just can't understand. And we need that because we can't navigate this world without them. So, you know, they're here, um, but we need to take responsibility with, with what, what's in front of us.
1: Well, I have lots more questions, but I'm running out of time. And we always end with two questions. If you look at the subtopics in machine learning, is there one that you think doesn't get as much attention as it deserves that that you think is way more important than people give it credit for?
0: Yeah, uh, I think it's information retrieval. So the world of IR is, is sort of machine learning. Kind of. I mean, it's sort of, you know, bm 25 algorithms and so on and sort of that. But I think information retrieval has is, is been something that we've totally forgotten about, but it's so fundamental to all database technology in the world. And yet we haven't really kind of given it the attention that it deserves. So, you know, aside from some sort of researchers that I'm sure are not getting their papers submitted to NIPS because their information retrieval is not top of the list, but more, more information retrieval, for sure. I feel like that was really the first
1: major application of machine learning, at least that I, I was aware of. So yeah, and we just haven't touched
0: it. The volume of information retrieval literature with these new kind of technologies is pretty low, and yet underneath it, it's a search and recall problem.
1: Interesting. I love it. That's the first. You're the first person that uh, said that. I think it's a great answer. <laughs> and okay. And the final question is: When you look at the projects that you've had of of kind of taking, you know, machine learning from conception to like deployed in production and and useful. Where were the surprising bottlenecks in that entire
0: process? I think the surprising ones have been just the, the amount of training data, right? And, and, and the importance of training data. I think coming in, we knew, we knew that data had to be cleaned. We knew that there was cost functions. We knew that there'd be deploy issues. We knew that there'd be security issues for deploying on-prem on sensitive data. All of that was known. I think coming into this, the importance Of not just the vol, and we we also knew that there'd be a volume of training data. What I didn't think at the top of this, and surprised me, was it the specificity of the training data drives the performance of the models in ways that um, are just not obvious when you start out on this. And these things are kind of excellent prediction machines, but they're also excellent cheaters, and they'll they'll find ways to cheat and find the right answer. But you know, it's because you gave them the wrong data. And I think that sensitivity to the data is something that's really surprised me. Now, on the flip side of that, if you start investigating, you know, methods of exposing these models to the right data, you also get wonderful performance in ways that go above and beyond sort of the general applications. So I think it's a blessing and a curse, but I don't think going into this, if I'd been told that that would be the thing that kind of drove the most kind of performance, that I would have agreed to that. So that's probably been the biggest surprise.
1: Well, thanks so much. This is really fun and and fascinating.
0: My pleasure. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thanks, Lucas.
1: Doing these interviews are a lot of fun. And the thing that I really want from these interviews is more people get to listen to them. And the easy way to get more people to listen to them is to give us a review that other people can see. So if you enjoyed this and you want to help us out a little bit, I would absolutely love it if you gave us a review. Thanks.